Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Charles Kimball. He is presidential professor and chair of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Oklahoma in Norman, Oklahoma. Norman, Oklahoma, by the way, is a very cool town, like a half an hour from Oklahoma City. Used to play there uh, in Sherwood quite a bit. Anyway, uh, he's a frequent speaker and he's been involved in all kinds of interreligious programs and dialogues. uh, And he's going to tell actually some crazy stories about his time uh, in the Middle East years ago. Anyway, he wrote this book. It's called Islam Truth Over Fear, Combating the Lies About Islam. Uh, I guess Islam is not the beginning of the title. It's just called Truth Over Fear, Combating the Lies Against Islam. Uh, And I immediately jumped on the chance to get a copy of this book and, and talk to Charles because I think that, you know, obviously, if you've been listening to this show, even just for a month or two, you've heard me Spent a lot of time talking about religious pluralism, um, basically feeling like I need to take other religious traditions very seriously, and I thought this would be great. So here's a Christian minister uh, and an academic who's just spent a lot of time in this world, and so uh, it's a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I hope you guys will enjoy it as well. Let's dive in. So I'm here with the Reverend Dr. Charles Kimball. Uh, Dr. Kimball, thank you so much for being here. I I want to start off by just kind of setting this up from where my friends and I seem to be coming. There's a sense in which 
a lot of people in my circles see what appears to be uh, Islamophobia um, in a lot of conservative Christianity. Maybe our parents are avid Fox News watchers and they share some of these headlines or they forward us emails about Sharia law coming to Michigan or something. We recognize that as like almost definitely wrong and misguided, but we don't necessarily have anything to replace that with. So I'm excited to talk with you today and hopefully you can help us replace that. What we're, we're pretty sure it's distorted, but we don't really know, you know, (laughs) what the correct thing is. So I'm excited for this conversation. Very good. Yeah. My first question for you, because I think this is one of those topics that, that people don't really know, like who's qualified to talk about something like this. I believe you are qualified, but I'd like you to explain to us kind of what makes someone qualified to do this kind of interfaith, comparative faith sort of work. Okay. Uh, first, let me just say that uh, in terms of your your opening comment, how do you uh, deal with this? How do you come back? How do you uh, demystify some of the things that are confusing? Now, this is exactly why I wrote the book Truth Over Fear, uh, subtitled Combating the Lies About Islam. Yep. Uh, and this grows out of really 45 years of work and experience. I got very interested. I'm an ordained Baptist minister. I was very interested in seminary in particular in studying world religions and wrestling with questions that not a lot of people were dealing with at the time, more now for sure. Uh, what does it mean to be a Christian, a person of faith, but in a world of great religious diversity? Uh, my grandfather, my father's father was Jewish, and I have a lot of Jewish relatives. And so and he was the most wonderful person I knew. And so uh, I grew up with a very positive image of Judaism. And that began to raise questions for me at an early age. Well, had I been born into another part of my own family, I'd be Jewish. And so how do you make sense of that? Uh, where do you, where's God in that? And how about these other religions that have stood the test of time? And so rather than just taking someone else's uh, word for it, I wanted to study that for myself. So I did my doctorate in comparative religion at Harvard after I finished seminary, and specialized, we, we studied all the world's religions, but I specialized on the Abrahamic traditions, especially Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I've been engaged both as an academic, uh, someone who studied about Islam and world religions uh, for over four decades, but about half that time I've spent actually working with churches. Uh, I served during the 1980s as the director of the Middle East office at the National Council of Churches, and have made over 40 trips to the Middle East. My wife and I lived in Cairo, spent a great deal of time in Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Syria, elsewhere, throughout the Middle East. So I've been very much engaged in service ministries and missionary activities, uh, dialogue programs at the national, international level. Uh, So what I bring to the topic is both an academic background, an experiential one, where I've actually been engaging these issues and wrestling with the complexities. It's not all simple and straightforward, of course, uh, but also very concerned at a ministerial level for what are the pragmatic consequences? How can we uh, find better ways to live together in the 21st century than has been the case often for Christians and Muslims historically, especially now that we live in a world that is so uh, explosive, that is so interdependent, uh, where, as we learned in 9-11, small numbers of people can literally wreak havoc on a global scale. And so the urgency of finding better ways to understand one another and live together with our differences is increasingly important. And I bring, so at any given point in time, your listeners might 
see me or hear me uh, putting on my academic hat as opposed to my ministerial hat as right. opposed to my whatever. Yeah, so we're going to go back and forth. Things. Okay. So just so that's sort of what brings me to it and uh, yeah. why, why I wrote the book. In other words, you know more about this than I know about anything. Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't know me well enough, but uh, that's true. T- take my word for it. So the first thing I want to talk about is misinformation. So this is what I identified at the beginning, right? We're pretty sure that these email forwards we get or the talking points at the Thanksgiving dinner table from conservative you know, family members are wrong, are misinformed. What I don't what I don't feel like I have a grasp on is just how much misinformation is being spread around in various circles about Islam. What's your gut on that? Uh, a great deal of misinformation and fear, and I think we'll talk about fear quite a bit probably during this uh, podcast. I would say that as way of background, it's important to remember, and most people don't really think about this, that Islam is the only religious tradition, once Christianity grew beyond its humble Jewish beginnings uh, and developed into a world religion, nothing really has ever threatened Christendom except for Islam. There was never a real danger of Judaism making a big comeback. That's interesting, uh, yeah. Nobody, nobody uh, worried about Scandinavian mythology or Native American religions or <laughs> yeah, whatever. Right, right. But in the 7th century, here comes a religious tradition that, talks about Abraham and Moses and God and the devil and Judgment Day and the Virgin Mary and uh, Jesus and heaven and hell. sounds very much like our religion, except they're winning. They are conquering militarily, uh, moving swiftly from 100 years after the death of Muhammad. Muslims had moved out of Arabia, across North Africa, into Spain, all the way up to the Pyrenees Mountains in the other direction through Palestine, Fertile Crescent, Mesopotamia, Tigris-Euphrates Valley, through what is uh, Persia-Iran, all the way to the borders of what's India-Pakistan. The world had never seen anything like this. Right. And so, I mean, it's larger than the Roman Empire, larger than the Alexander the Great and his, his successors. Uh, so it was a tremendous uh, success in terms of expansion and spread and civilization even. It wasn't just military, but it developed an incredible civilizational system. And that posed huge threats, uh, understandable threats to particularly European Christians. In the book, I do talk about and have tried to give some different perspective that most people don't have in the West, especially, and that is of the Middle Eastern Christians who have actually lived together with Muslims for 1,400 plus years and lived, uh, for the most part, pretty well. There are always times of tension and problems and persecutions, but the very fact that there are 15 to 17 million Arabic-speaking Christians living among the larger Muslim majority, that uh, dispels one of the myths that somehow Muslims are being told they're supposed to kill the Christians and Jews. Right. If that if that's the case, that apparently they never got the memo because they're still living with 10% of the population Christians in these predominantly Muslim Arabic-speaking countries. Uh, and their history of relationship with Muslims is much more positive than the European and Western one. So Islam, sort of deep in, the, deep in our bones, I would say, and this comes through literature, this comes through tradition in all kinds of ways. Islam is perceived as something that is coming at us and is a threat. That isn't the case with Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, or other religious traditions. I mean, people in Western Europe in the Middle Ages may have heard that there was such a thing as a Hindu, but they never would have met one. Uh, but they had a keen awareness of Islam as a danger and as a threat. So that is the background, I think that sets it up as a different dynamic 
Also, it's important to remember that Islam and Christianity are the two largest, Christianity then Islam are the two largest right. religions. These are both missionary religions. Right. At the heart, at the heart of both traditions is the expectation that you will share that message, share the good news of God as you understand it with others. Of all the great world religions, the only other one that is actually missionary in orientation is Buddhism. And it was never as aggressively missionary as Christians and Muslims right. have been. Some of that, I think, is tied to the whole idea of monotheism and this, you know, this is the truth from the God. And so that has led Christians and Muslims at times to be uh, harsh, uh, let's say, in their missionary endeavors right. uh, for the good of the natives or whomever they're you know, taking their message to. Yeah, so, that's, a, that's, a whole, <laughs> that's a whole other can of worms, the colonial missionary stuff. Would right. it be fair to say that um, maybe the, t the particular strain of fear— Islamophobia, fear about sort of the Muslim world that has been activated as a result of modern day terrorism is kind of just like um, really just the newest chapter in that long history of sort of the competition of these two big faiths. I actually began, began the, the book to set the background. This is the deeper background that I'm giving you now. But when I would bring it up to say that where things really began to take a turn was with the Iranian Revolution. And I, it wasn't terrorism. It was the, mm. the fact that uh, this America, as Henry Kissinger called him, America's unconditional ally, the Shah, was toppled in a nonviolent revolution uh, where 90% of the population opposed him. And this sent shockwaves around the world. Uh, what in the world is going on if the guy who's got all this money and the U.S. support and the, the most sophisticated military and a brutal secret police is hounded out of office by people going up to the rooftops yelling Allahu Akbar at midnight. Right. Uh, Even if that, it's not nonviolently, right, at that point. Right, yeah, right. right. And so uh, the, the Iranian Revolution was largely, almost exclusively nonviolent uh, from the standpoint of the revolutionaries. Now, that sent shockwaves, and I think that also inspired not just Muslims, but if you look at the 1980s, that was 1979, if you look at the 80s, you see change comes in the Philippines, change comes in South Africa. Uh, there are plenty of uh, countries in Central America that are clamoring for change from dictatorial rule. So I think that was a kind of a very important mark in the later part, latter part of the 20th century, where suddenly uh, the idea that just because you're a dictator and have uh, you know, a strong military and secret police doesn't mean you can stay in power. And then we began to see in the 80s the rise of more militant Islamic groups, like Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Party of God, uh, Hamas uh, in in, uh, in Gaza, especially, uh, and then groups like uh, well, the, the group that assassinated Sadat in Egypt, uh, Islamic Jihad. So there is this revolutionary movement that gets connected in some places to uh, violence and to okay, the only thing they understand is hit them where it hurts, and of course then then you get terrorism associated with that too, and there of course have been terrorist groups and terrorist tactics and so forth. So those, I think, get wedded together somehow with this larger fear of Islam and somehow thinking, okay, you know, there's something inherently violent about this religion. Yeah, what's um, the connecting factor here between all these things? Well, it's all Islamic. Yeah, right. But what most people don't know is that uh, there were more suicide bombers in Sri Lanka than anywhere else uh, in the world for about 25 years. But that didn't get the attention uh, in the same sort of way. Well, those were Buddhists and Hindus, and this wasn't, you know, it wasn't Islam. But that isn't to deny that, in fact, there are 
Muslim or there are groups that claim inspiration from Islam, and I talk about this a lot in the book. We can't duck that or shouldn't deny that. These are real groups. They're really dangerous. Books, groups like Boko Haram or uh, Shabab in, in East Africa or, you know, obviously uh, the ones we know about ISIS and Al-Qaeda and so right. forth. Uh, these are real parts of the landscape. The challenge is, and this is, this is where I come back to your original question about, you know, how, how do we replace these sort of images? And this is what I try to develop, I think, in the book in a very accessible way. Uh, that these are real, but these are a small fraction of the larger Muslim population. They get a lot and, of press coverage uh, because they're but, big events, yeah. Well, that's just it. I think this is, a, again, the thing to always, and we all know this, but we have to be reminded consciously that our media will almost always tend to gravitate what, towards what is most dramatic and sensational. Yeah, what's it, newsworthy, you, right. Well, if you turn on the news at night, it's it's the the shooting outside the bar, it's the house on fire, it's the car wreck, uh, it's it's whatever is dramatic, sensational, and gets your attention. Uh, it's not you know a, a rabbi, an imam, and a pastor having a conversation about how do we find ways to work together in the community. Well, that produces a yawn, uh, but right. a motorcycle wreck, you know, is going to be the lead story. So we have to understand that that it's real what we're seeing. But it isn't necessarily representative. Here's a good way to think about it. The largest Muslim country in the world is Indonesia. More than 230 million Muslims in the country of Indonesia. That means there are 15 times as many Muslims in Indonesia as there are Southern Baptists in the whole world. And the Southern Baptists are the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. 15 times more Muslims in Indonesia than Southern Baptists. What are those 230 million people plotting right now? Well, they're yeah. about twelve about twelve hours ahead of us. So uh, you know, most of them are asleep because uh, we're taping this mid afternoon. But you know, in a few hours they'll get up, they'll get around the breakfast table. They're not going to be plotting what they're going to blow up. They're going to be figuring out, you know, if you got everything for Grandma's birthday party ready for tonight, and can you stay home with the sick child? I've got to go to work, or you know, is the flat tire fixed so we can? They're living normal lives, but that isn't newsworthy. Uh, right. 19 people hijacked four planes and you could argue changed the world. 230 million people are living normal lives and as horrified by the hijackers of 9-11 as you and I, but they don't seem to count in the picture. So part of it is recognizing what is actually representative of Muslims. And that's part of what I try to explore and humanize in the book. Right. Well, so you're, you're getting to this question of fear. I mean, a lot of the things that you've mentioned in the last few minutes are scary, right? So sure. uh, revolutions in countries that were once strong allies that we don't really understand and, of course, terror groups and even just footage, you know, footage of people chanting in different languages that look different. And uh, it it's just there's a natural psychological reaction to that as human beings who evolved to basically live in tribes of 250 people or fewer that look exactly <laughs> like us. That's what our brains evolved for. And yet we know that fear is not a good motivator. Can you say a little bit about why fear tends to motivate us in the wrong ways? And, and I think probably at this point we bring in some Christian theology here and, and some, some basic Christian worldview stuff, right? Let me take one quick step back before we uh, address that and just remind people uh, we have tended to sort of clean up our own revolution. Uh, mm. We we like to think, you know, we see, as you say, you see these revolutionary people who 
are protesting, who want to get rid of a dictator, who want to be free, who want to have self-determination, uh, even though they're not quite clear on what that's going to mean, but they know they don't like you know, a Saddam Hussein uh, or a Gaddafi or some thug over them. Well, we celebrate on the 4th of July the fact that we didn't want a king dictating to us. Right. And if you actually study the American Revolution, this was not quick and easy. This went on for a while. They were still hanging Tories three years later in Boston uh, after the success of the revolution. Revolutions are messy. Uh, and I just think it's important to, to always bear in mind uh, that when we celebrate our own desire to be free and not be under the dictates of a king or a dictator, it's somewhat understandable that other people would want to have self-determination too, especially in right. today's world where you can you know, communicate with anybody in the world and they look around and they say, wait a minute, South Africa doesn't have apartheid anymore. Why are we living under dictatorial rule? For sure. Uh, so we yeah. as Americans actually should be supportive of people who want self-determination. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. When you see an angry mob or they take hostages or somebody blows something up, the tendency is not to be empathetic, but rather to be afraid. And uh, fear is a very powerful emotion, to get back to your specific question. And it's not a bad emotion. I mean, if there's, you know, if you hear a lion or tiger outside your door, it's a good idea to be afraid and, you know, take precautions. Uh, you know, fear is a healthy emotion in many cases. But what we, we do see all the time, certainly, uh, and this is not unique to Christianity. We find this in other traditions, too. We find religious leaders and political leaders who understand the, how powerful a motivator fear is. All you have to do is watch political elections to see who's whipping up what fears, you know, what's, what disaster is going to befall unless I'm elected. You know, I'm the one who can fix this. I'm the one who will solve your economic problems or the health care issues or whatever it may be. Um, you know, and if you don't like me, well, then, you know, everything's going to go down the drain. So fear is a powerful emotion. Or if you look at the history of, uh, you know, Christianity, Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, you know, fear you better of hell. get this right, right. Or fear of hell yep. uh, is a strong motivator. You know, it's not a very pleasant idea to spend eternity in hell. Uh, so fear is, is, is powerful. And political and religious leaders know that and, uh, you know, and obviously play to that in ways that uh, when you stop and look at it and start thinking, okay, and all the politicians, all you have to do is start breaking down all the promises they're making. Well, they can't possibly do all the things they say they want to do. Right. But, you know, they can certainly whip you into a frenzy about the dangers of this and that. And whether it's big corporations or losing your health care or whatever it might be. And, you know, some of these are real. They're, they're not I'm not saying these are trivial issues, but you can see that. And when it comes to. If you take a bigger step back, one of, one of the things that many people have argued, I don't particularly argue this in the book, but I think there's some merit to it, is that one of the most powerful things that one sees across the, across the world's religious traditions and cultures is that political leaders and, and military leaders uh, constantly look for ways to use fear to unite people and often to distract away from problems in their own country. Starting a war is one of the most common themes that you find throughout human history. You know, okay, we got problems here, but hey, the bad guys are at our door, you know, and people will tend to unite around nation and country and countrymen and clan or whatever. And the differences are not as important as the threat that's coming at you. And so when the Soviet Union fell, uh, that was, of course, the big threat. That was the big fear. And understandably, I mean, I grew up with fallout shelters and drills in schools and the danger of nuclear war, which is 
hasn't gone away. People act as though, you know, it has, but uh, it's uh, probably more more relevant now than it was when I was growing up in the sense that dirty bombs or somebody getting hold of a small nuclear device. Um, yeah, know, I mean, a very complete, frightening prospect. complete destruction of the of North America and Europe is maybe less likely in one fell swoop, but some other kind of nuclear event is probably more likely now. Yeah, or biological or chemical right. weapons. I yeah. mean, and, and, and this is one of the things that's, that is a real danger when it comes to extremists. I don't doubt for a second that the people who, who uh, attacked the World Trade Center and the Pentagon on 9-11-2001, if they had had access to a nuclear device, they would have used it. Right, for sure. I think they were trying to do the most destructive possible thing they could. Uh, and, you know, this is one reason we have to be working very closely together across religious, political, and other lines, because there are people out there who want to do great harm and would use these devices. So, so in some sense, very- fear is a good motivator if it is accurate to the threat level right. in terms of right. like you are legitimately worried about a possible event like this and, and it motivates you to do this interfaith work, right, to right. to work on – right, so that's – that's a good use of fear. That's a, appropriate to the situation. But what we're mostly talking about here in terms of Islam and how it's portrayed in the media and how it's portrayed right. by various Christian thinkers and writers and whatever is not that. It's, it's, not, it's not appropriate to the actual facts on the ground. I'm wondering if you can give us some examples right. of this kind of fear mongering, like sure, either sure. Tr- politicians or news anchors or pastors or you know one of each or whatever. Well, uh, I had about 15 pages in my original draft uh, of the chapter where I was sort of making the point, and my editors forced me down to about three or four to say, right. we get it, we get it, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I have three specific things from President Trump when he announced the ban on Muslims and then tried to implement that in the first week in office was one uh, very vivid example that produced a lot of pushback and even uh, a lot of pushback from the courts as well. Thankfully, uh, yep. One of the one of the things that uh, uh, let me actually I'm going to just actually read this because it's a it's a yeah a short paragraph but it it will remind the the readers of you know just how you know how serious this uh, this was I'll just read a paragraph here from Truth Over Fear in the first chapter uh, where he President Trump casually and impulsively disseminated anti-Islamic communication that engendered immediate and sharply critical reactions. On an international scale, on that day, he retweeted three anti-Muslim videos produced by a group called Britain First, a well-known far-right hate group in England. At the time, Trump had 44 million daily followers on Twitter. The first video claimed to show a Muslim migrant beating up, beating up the Dutch boy on crutches. The second was labeled, Muslim destroys a statue of the Virgin Mary. And the third read, Islamic mob pushes teenage boy off roof and beats him to death. At the time of the tweet, all three videos had been proven to be misleading and untruthful. Within 24 hours, the British Prime Minister Theresa May issued a strong rebuke of President Trump for hate-mongering. The Archbishop of Canterbury communicated his dismay at this deeply disturbing decision to amplify the voices of far-right extremists. Uh, And the mayor of uh, London, Sadiq Khan, denounced Britain first as a vile, hate-filled group and called upon the British government to rescind the invitation to the president to come to the U.K., in 2018, which they did. Uh, Mike Huckabee and Newt Gingrich have issued and made horrific statements, generic statements condemning the Muslims. Here's one from Mike Huckabee. Uh, one of his broadcasts, he said, 
Uh, can someone explain to me why it is that we tiptoe around a religion that promotes the most mur- murderous mayhem on the planet in their so-called holiest days? Muslims go into the mosque, they will have their day of prayer, and they come out of there like uncorked animals throwing rocks and burning cars. Uh, now think about that. He's using this generically. Muslims do this. Yeah. We tiptoe around a religion. It's the whole group. It's this monolithic image that this is somehow what Muslims do. Newt Gingrich proposed after a horrific incident in Nice where a number of people were killed by a guy who had a truck and started running over innocent people. Horrific episode. He said every Muslim should be quizzed in the United States, and if they believed in Sharia, they should be deported. Well, every Muslim should be trying to follow Islamic law. So it, it reflects he doesn't even know what Sharia is or how it's supposed to work. But Sharia itself becomes a buzzword somehow exactly. for, uh, you know, be afraid. They're trying to take over everything. Yep. Uh, many other examples of pundits, of preachers. I mean, I, I could go on and on from Franklin Grand to Jerry Falwell Jr. to uh, Robert Jeffers, uh, pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas. If you if you simply put any of those names in and Islam and do a Google search, you'll find all kinds of things yeah. that they're saying. And they tend to be portraying Islam. Uh, in very monolithic, generic terms. Uh, And all you have to do, if you would just put in, when you see something like that, if you substitute black or Jewish, you can sort of see, wait a minute, that's that's a racist thing to say. Right, (laughs) yeah. uh, uh, But we're not as as sensitized, uh, unfortunately, to this kind of generic picture of Islam because most of what a lot of people see are going to be things related to violence and, and threats. And so the kind of lies that uh, are out there, one, that Muslims are somehow all in some conspiracy to take over the world, uh, or one that we hear, we get in emails from that, that uncle of ours who wants us to know that uh, Muslims are, uh, you know, the Quran somehow is telling them to kill all the Christians and Jews. Uh, that's another one. So th- these are the kinds of things, as I say, there's, there are many, I had pages and pages and pages. It's all around us. And part of what's not visible, but I think is very dangerous is what's happening not from the big-name people, but from local pastors, people. And and I run into this all the time. Yeah, this is something I was interested in when I was reading the book because I'm also aware of this sort of, you know, the Mike Huckabees and the Trump and all that stuff, but maybe a bit more insidious and and not as clear to me because I'm not in a conservative church environment is the kind of more local level. So, yeah, so what's going on there? Well, I think a lot is going on. I hear this uh, particularly from my students. Uh, I teach at the University of Oklahoma. I used to teach at Wake Forest University. I'm a native Oklahoman, so I got lured back to the home state a decade ago to build a program here at the University nice. of Oklahoma. Uh, and uh, anyway, they so you know a lot of my students when they're when they're being exposed to things, they're reading, they're learning, they're meeting Muslims. Uh, they will confess, you know, I'm from a small town and such and such a place, and. You know, I've never heard anything like this. In fact, what I've been hearing is that, you know, Muslims are dangerous. They're a threat. They want to kill us. Uh, they're trying to take over the world. They want to impose their laws on the U.S., et cetera, et cetera. And so I see it and hear it in that kind of way. But it's also obvious in other ways, too. I mean, I, I have encounters with people uh, where they will just start, you know, blurting out things that uh, it's obvious they're getting this from church somewhere. Uh, one, of, one a classic one. <laughs> This is a longer story, but the, the very short version is I was getting a rental car in Greenville, South Carolina a few years ago, and this one woman asked why I was there. I said, well, I'm coming to give a lecture at Furman University. And she was, oh. And I said, I used to teach at this university, so I know Greenville very well. And she was, oh. She said, what is it about? 
And so I said, well, I'm kind of an expert on Islam in the Middle East. He was, oh, well, you know, do you think Obama's a Muslim? And I said, well, no, ma'am, he's not a Muslim. He's a Christian. His father was a Muslim. But she said, well, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Uh, and so I just said, well, wh why do you say that? And she goes, well, because if you're a Muslim and you, you leave the faith, they kill you. And the fact that he's alive proves that he's still a Muslim. I said, well, wow. And then I began to talk to her. And, you know, now this is somebody who is renting me a car who should be, you know, taught, you know, be nice to the customer. You know? But she starts, pick, <laughs> she starts picking a fight with me. Uh, and I finally looked at her and I said, you know, ma'am, I've been studying Islam. I've, I'm a Christian minister. I've been engaging with Muslims for 40 years. And you're telling me things about Islam I didn't know. And, of course, it went right over her head. She didn't get it. Didn't, but, yeah, she didn't get the joke, but, yeah. But she's actually just, I mean, and she went on and on. It was very obvious that as she talked more that she was getting this from her local pastor. And don't believe what they say. He's a Muslim. There's a plot to take down the country. And, in fact, when, when Obama was elected, 18% of the people of the country thought he was a Muslim. Two years into his first term, 22% of the people thought he was a Muslim. And he went up, not down. Which was a fascinating thing because, you know, he was deeply criticized because of the minister of the church where he'd been a member for 20 years in Chicago, you know, was this radical guy. And so he was being criticized for being in that church, right. which I thought was pretty good cover, 20 years church membership for being a Muslim. But uh, I mean, this gets at something that's kind of beyond the purview of our conversation today, but maybe I'll just kind of flag it for people to think about in the future is what's going on psychologically, right? So. What is it about a black president that's liberal that makes people more likely to believe a claim with very little evidence like Obama's a Muslim, right? It, like, I don't, I don't know. I don't purport to know the answer to that, but that is, that's fascinating. And, and it's, it's really lurking in the background of all of this, right? Muslims right. are a group of people we don't have very much interaction with, most of us in America. So they're a convenient kind of scapegoat. They're sort of maximally different their language to anglo ears sounds violent compared to other like italian doesn't sound that way the way that arabic sounds it doesn't have all the, the fast <laughs> consonants right i mean it's 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 like really guttural stuff is is kind of a lot of my take on it is like it just is different portuguese does not sound to us like arabic sounds to us and that's just chance like that's completely chance but well, what effects well, but does that have but let me let me just interject to point out again where the where the perceptions and the biases come into play. The large majority of Muslims are not Arabic speaking anyway. Right, but there's just the ones that are on the news. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. But you know you have the the three three of the uh, four largest Muslim countries. Actually, four uh, of the five largest Muslim countries. Uh, Arabic is not the language. It's Pakistan, it's Bangladesh, right. it's India, uh, has a large Muslim population, and Indonesia. And then you have Turkey, it's not far behind. Uh, they don't speak Arabic either. Hmm. <clears throat> but the perception somehow is this is a Middle Eastern religion. Right. Well, it originates there, but so did Christianity. So did Judaism. Exactly, right. Yeah. So again, it's this, uh, and that's part of what I'm trying to point out is that uh, probably about 1.7 billion people on the planet are Muslims or would self-identify that way. Uh, and the vast majority of them are living normal lives, uh, often in very difficult circumstances in poor places like Bangladesh or Pakistan or right. India. Uh, and 
And so, but our images are going to be more focused on what the Saudis are saying or doing or what exactly. the, you know, the Gulf states or Saddam Hussein or Iran, uh, which isn't Arabic speaking either. But anyway, it's, uh, it, it, it just shows that we, we don't know as much. And let me, let me just make a point here that I think is really significant that we know enough about our own religious tradition that when we see something that is really extreme, we know enough to put it in the context of that is extreme. Uh, very few people I know personally, although some do, would would say the KKK is a shining example of what Jesus taught. Right. It's an extreme perversion of American Christianity mixed with Southern racism or something like that. Right, right. And so, but we know enough about, you know, the Catholics who are doing X or the Presbyterians of a food uh, shelter and right. a shelter for battered women. And we know about Billy Graham and we know about all kinds of things that we say, okay, well, that's, that's not what represents Christianity, but that's just because they're the burning a call ca- just because they're burning a cross. Actually, I don't even think that most American Christians would even consider the KKK to have any Christian connection at all, but they're burning crosses. They, exactly. they self-profess to be right. doing something Christian. I think that we actually, when we think of the KKK, we just think of them as a racist organization with nothing to do with Christianity, sort of the right. way that Muslims talk about uh, terrorist groups when they do get on the news. They say, here's, this has nothing here, to do with Islam. Here's the, here's the trick. Uh, most of us, I include myself, most of us tend to think about our own religion in terms of its ideal yep. and everybody else's religion in terms of the flawed lived reality. As a rabbi friend once put it to me very poignantly, said, I'm very happy for this new day in Christian-Jewish relations, but you have to remember, it's not easy for us as Jews. 2,000 years of Christian love has been almost more than we could endure. Now, <laughs> when you think about that, if you ask most love Christians— Love in quotes, obviously, yeah. Right. You would say, well, Jesus taught a gospel of love, but if you look at the history of Christian anti-Semitism, it's anything but. But— we, we still want to think about our religion as, well, Jesus taught a gospel of love. Be peacemakers. Turn the other cheek. You know, don't return evil for evil. Well, how do you explain the 900-page book uh, called Constantine's Sword, which details the history of Christian anti-Semitism and all of its horrors? Uh, people don't always live out the best of their religious tradition. And that's true for Muslims, too. So right. part, of my, part of my point is that when Muslims say, well, that's not, that's not really Islam— my response to that is it isn't what Islam is supposed to be in the view of the vast majority of Muslims, but these people think that they're doing what God wants them to do. Just like Westboro Baptist Church people think that they're doing, you may find them vile and utterly antithetical to your version of Christianity. They don't think they are. They are part of the picture. And so extremists claiming inspiration from Islam have to be taken seriously. Uh, and you can't simply write them out of the tradition when you begin to do that, when you begin to narrow down and say, well, this is true Islam and that's not true Islam, or this is true Christianity, well, then you end up, as you do in Christianity, with 30,000 different uh, denominations because they're the ones who happen to know the truth. They happen to know the truth, yeah. It makes me think that like, probably something that's going on here is that you're going to have extremists in any society. You're especially going to have them when the conditions are right. That's going to be some economics. There's going to be some um, some sort of grievance politics. There's going to be some serious material need 
There's going to be probably some feeling battered down, some sense that our group has no power and this other group that has, you know, the, whatever you want to name as the conditions for extremism, which uh, are potential anytime there are enough people around for there to be power differentials, right? Sure. And then, okay, so let's say you get people who, given enough people in that situation, some number of them are going to turn to some extreme ideology. Well, what language are they going to use to talk about what they're doing? Well, they're going to use the language of their time and place. If those, if that happens to come about in a Christian, largely Christian culture, they're going to use a cross. They're going to burn a cross. If it happens to come about in a largely Islamic culture, they're going to use the Quran and the Hadith. Uh, if it comes about as it has, for instance, in uh, Pakistan and Sri Lanka or whatever, they're going to use Hindu or Buddhist uh, you know, imagery, not, not Pakistan, that's largely Muslim, right, but right. Uh, Sri Lanka, right? So in some sense, this is just how, I mean, and if you, if you look at politicians on the debate stage or giving speeches in America, they use Christian language, even yeah. re regardless of what they think, this is the way that they communicate their values to their potential voters. Religious language is part of cultural language, depending on where you are. It would be very odd for a presidential candidate to quote the Quran in the United States. It would be very right. odd for them to quote the Bible in Iraq, right? right. So it's just – some of it has got to just be that. And we don't, we don't like to think in terms like that because what's entailed in thinking that way is that yeah, some aspect of the fact that I'm a Christian is because I was born into a Christian context. We don't want to go there, so we won't go there when it comes to the language that any particular movement will end up – naturally picking up from its own circumstances. Well, and I would add to that, I think you're right. I think uh, I would just simply want to add that historically, a lot of war and conflict, which may or may not begin as a religious conflict, often gravitates towards religious justifications and rationale, in part because that puts conflict, that puts living and dying into a framework that people can respond to. Okay, your son was killed, but you know, for a righteous cause, he's now right. in heaven. It's powerful. Uh, and basically. so it, 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 it frames, it gives meaning to life and death sort of struggles, or if you lose your life, you know, for X. And we, we, I mean, we celebrate that for country, too. I mean, there are people who do heroic things in battle, and we say, you know, they gave their life for their, you know, fellow soldiers or whatever, and that's a very noble sort of thing. Uh, so we get a, a glimpse of that was around nationalism, but religion is often a more powerful and more encompassing framework. And so conflicts that may or may not have religious roots often end up taking those. Uh, and so you see, this is another subject, but just to illustrate, in a place like Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia or Lebanon, where Christians and Muslims had lived together for long, long, long periods of time, suddenly turning and having ethnic cleansing and having... Uh, you know, the people you've lived next door to for X number of years, suddenly now your daughter is a candidate for rape because she's a Muslim or, you know, whatever, uh, or kidnapping, whatever it may be. And it's amazing the power of religion for group identity uh, and to frame things in terms of heaven and hell. And, you know, again, political leaders, religious leaders uh, are good at this. Uh, some may be sincere, some may be cynical, uh, as I like to tell people when I'm giving public lectures, which I do a lot, uh, you know, when you when you see, you know, people like Saddam Hussein, who was a secular thug of the first order, 
using religion to try and motivate people, talking about liberating Jerusalem and having God as the greatest sown on the secular flag of Iraq, you know, you see someone who's using for religion for political purposes. Now, none of our political leaders would ever do such a thing, but <laughs> but we see that we see this in other parts of the world pretty vividly. So, oh gosh, yeah. Okay, well, uh, we're going to take a, a short break, and we're going to come back and talk about Sharia, if okay. that will uh, get people's uh, interest peaked. And during this short break, of course, I'm going to talk to you about the Patreon. Uh, campaign is that what it's called there's a patreon what is it called i guess it's a campaign campaign feels weird like it's short the patreon is ongoing anyway this week the most recent exclusive episode for patrons only was with myron penner the philosopher from british columbia who was on the recent uh, coronavirus and the problem of evil episode and something came up during that episode called skeptical theism we talked about it for just a few minutes, but it was I was really intrigued by it and wanted to pursue it further. So I did a whole conversation with Myron about skeptical theism. Uh, the one sentence definition of it is uh, basically it's a view that says whatever God's reasons are for morally allowing suffering, we might we should expect that our cognitive machinery is not capable of discerning those reasons. So it is one of the answers from a Christian perspective or a theistic perspective uh, to the problem of evil. It's something that I was I was curious about. I'm, I find myself quite open to it after having this long conversation with him. Super interesting. It's a little bit on the headier side uh, compared to most episodes, but you don't have to have a degree in philosophy or anything to listen to it. Um, I think we did a pretty good job of keeping the language regular, um, understandable. Anyway, so that's there. Uh, and if you guys are already patrons, I recommend listening to that one. Uh, really cool conversation. Uh, so what patrons get is two, at least two of those every month, these exclusive episodes. Also, membership in the patron-only Facebook group, which, uh, as I say over and over again, has become such an awesome community. And it really has. Just recently, I ran a survey and got over 200 responses from the survey to get information about this group of people, episode ideas, things that have been roadblocks to faith um and i'm just learning a lot learning a lot about you guys and it's great it's like a it's like a partnership of hundreds of people on the other side um so that's five bucks a month patreon.com slash dan coke or you have permission pod.com click become a patron but if finances are really tough for you right now because of coronavirus or something else there is a sliding scale and if that's the case, please email me. You have permission podcast at gmail.com and we will work it out. Okay, back to my conversation. Dr. Kimball, Sharia, Sharia law. This is the buzzword in Islamophobic Christianity, I think, these days. Maybe the buzzwords uh, take turns. Maybe it was jihad. <laughs> it might have been jihad uh, closer to 9-11. That was the buzzword. And I, I do want to talk about that. But I think let's start with Sharia because that's the one that's the one I hear when I hear people who are afraid. What the hell is Sharia law? What is it actually? Good. Good question. Uh, and you're asking someone from the state that led the charge against Sharia law. In 2010, Oklahoma, uh, in a hastily produced referendum, 
voted with a 70% plurality to ban Sharia and all international law from Oklahoma, which was showed how hastily prepared it was. Apparently, we couldn't do business with the Swedes anymore because uh, <laughs> that, would, that would involve international law. But that was how that was where the fear kicked in. I have personally interviewed over 100 clergy in the decade since uh, in Oklahoma. And at some point, I will pop the trick question and say, well, what do you think about this Sharia deal? Uh, oh, oh, I'm against it. Well, I, OK, I understand a lot of people are. But what what specifically? Well, you know, Sharia. I'm against Sharia. But what what is it you're concerned about? What are you afraid is going to come over the Red River from Texas and get us? You know, what is it exactly? Sharia. Uh, they have no idea what it is, but they just know it's coming and we're going to stop it. It's and a scary it. buzzword, right? It's a buzzword. Exactly what you're saying. And so 70 percent of the people voted for this. Now, it was struck down by the courts immediately as being you know, absurd. So basically, Sharia is it, it literally means the, the way to the watering hole is a path. And sometimes you get this uh, image of Islam as the straight path. The idea is you want to be doing what God wants you to do. Well, how do you know what God wants you to do, right? Because behind this is the whole Islamic, and it's not alien to Christianity or Judaism, historically the idea that God created the world, God is sustaining the world, one day we'll be accountable to our Creator on the Day of Judgment, individually or collectively somehow, you know, there'll be this Day of Judgment. Well, what are you going to be accountable for? You know, what is it you're going to be judged on? If heaven and hell hang in the balance, what's the basis of the judgment? And the answer in Islam is that God has not left us alone, but God has revealed through many prophets and messengers. The most mentioned prophet in the Quran is Moses, 200 times almost. Abraham is over 120 times. Jesus, 93 times. Muhammad, three times. So Islam sees itself as the same religion that produced Judaism and Christianity. Right. Uh, and that the idea is that God has continually reached out and revealed to us now, this one last time, God has revealed through the final prophet, this is the Islamic teaching, uh, what human beings need to know. And this time it was captured in its purity in the Quran. That is the basis. But then also the example of the prophet comes to be called Hadith, the sayings and the actions of the prophet as the exemplar of the faith form a second stream that feeds into what becomes Islamic law or Sharia. That's what it just means. Much of it, and then there's some other sources I don't want to get too far into the weeds with uh, how consensus or uh, analogy work, but in a legal system, we have the same thing. You know, often lawyers will argue, you know, on, in the case of so-and-so versus so-and-so, the court ruled X. And so by, by analogy, that same principle should apply here. Yeah, that's arguing for precedent. Yeah, that's a, that's a number, uh, uh, another factor in developing Islamic law. So basically, it is to guide you in your life as a Muslim. The large majority has to do with just very practical things. How do you prepare yourself for prayer? How do you cleanse yourself? How do you prepare a body for burial? How do you, you know, just how do you do the things in the right sort of way? And a small portion of it deals with criminal uh, law and punishment. That's what gets all the attention, of how, course. How similar or dissimilar is it from, say, the Torah in Judaism, like the the laws given to Moses and, and there's a lot, of, a lot of, uh, yeah, there are a lot of parallels, and there are a lot of very harsh things in the Hebrew Bible that most right. people tend not to even notice or read about. But like, you know, if your children disobey you, you should execute them. Uh, that's uh, not many people I know have, have uh, thought they should. Well, you might have thought you should, but you don't do it at times. 
it, there's some, yeah, there are some parallels in all kind of ritual and purity laws and, you know, that's kind of stuff you read about that have to do with, oh, well, if a woman's menstruating, she can't do X, Y, and Z, and because she's not considered pure. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff, too, is in Sharia. But it's also important to underscore, this is always a work in progress. This is not fixed and set, and this is part of the negative image that people have, that somehow uh, that what we saw in Afghanistan under the Taliban is what Sharia law is. Well, that's one interpretation. Okay. Good. Okay, it's yeah, very, that's helpful. It's a very extreme interpretation of Sharia that grows out of the most conservative school, which happens to be the Hanbali school. I don't want to take you too deep into the weeds here, but that's the school that the Saudis practice uh, that they export. It's not it's not the largest school by any stretch, but it's very influential because the Saudis put a lot of money into building mosques and training people. So it's disproportionately, uh, you know, uh, I, I would say impactful uh, because of those resources. Perhaps but, in the way that young earth creationism is disproportionately impactful in the United States because it too yeah, yeah. has a lot of funding and big organizations behind it. Yeah, there's there's some analogy I would say there that that money talks. Uh, but the the point I want to underscore is that very quickly Muslims understood that there has to be a lot more flexibility and has to be adapted to the time and to the place and circumstance. So, for example, strictly speaking, early on, uh, you had very much an eye for an eye, tooth for a truth, tooth kind of thing. If you're caught stealing, you should have your hand cut off. Well, that would be a real you know deterrent from stealing something else. Well, very quickly, they discover, well, wait a second, it's one thing if you just happen to like my gold and you sneak into my house and steal my gold. It's another thing if a father with five hungry children who has no job steals a loaf of bread to feed his kids. Are you going to cut off his hand? Who's going to be punished? The children are going to have even less access to you know what the father can produce. So we have to have a punishment that somehow is commensurate with, you know, it's not just stealing is stealing. There are different levels of crime. So they immediately began to recognize, well, wait a second, you know, we've got to work on this, modify this. Let me let me back up and, and illustrate it this way. When the Taliban was in power in Afghanistan and implementing extraordinarily harsh, you know, stoning people to death for adultery, uh, just, all, you know, all kinds of things they were doing uh, that were horrific to most people uh, sort of outside of Afghanistan. There are more than 55 countries in the world that have Muslim majorities only three countries ever recognized the Taliban as legitimate, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and the United Arab Emirates, which is to say most of the Muslims in the world thought those people were nuts and they wanted nothing to do with that kind of Islamic law. But the image we get, of course, is that that's what Sharia is. Well, it is for a small portion of Muslims and some in Saudi Arabia who implement very harsh penalties too, the death penalty and stuff. Most Muslim countries don't have the death penalty. But clearly, they don't even have it. Right, right. We have it. Right. Yeah, or some states have it here. Uh, Interesting. There aren't aren't a lot of countries that do. China does. uh, Saudi Arabia does. We do. uh, But not a lot of other countries do. So I want to pivot from what it actually is to what's going on with this this particular phenomena phenomenon in the states of it's coming here. You know, I, I had a. A uh, middle-aged woman in my life once tell me, you know, send me a article about some town in Michigan. I looked it up. It was it was a hoax or whatever. But it has a real purchase, right? It, it has a psychological purchase that like, oh, in these communities where there are a bunch of Muslim immigrants, they are trying to impose their law on America or their township or whatever. 
What's going on there? Yeah, that's. I think it's tied to that larger sort of fear. And again, if you if you listen to you know, and I'm not recommending your listeners do this, but I mean I've done it, but you know it'll get you flagged by the FBI, I guess. If you go online and look at the speeches of uh, of uh, Osama bin Laden, which has been all translated, hmm. what is he actually saying? Uh, what are you know some of the people in ISIS, those leaders, are you know, doing horrific things? But what is it they're advocating? Well, you do find there are people like ISIS that wanted to take over the world. They wanted to start a caliphate. You know, they're the non-state group, right? So they have grandiose visions. Well, that's a piece of the picture. But the vast majority of Muslims are trying to figure out how do we make Egypt work? How do we make Tunisia work? We live in a world of nation states. We want to have food. We want to have health care. We want to, you know, make our country work. And that we get lost. Somehow all Muslims are in on this plot to take over the world. When you come to America... I mean, I know hundreds of Muslims, literally, in the United States, many of them, you know, doctors, architects, uh, business leaders. I don't know a single Muslim who wants Sharia to be the law of the land. They, if they're practicing Muslims, they want Sharia to guide their lives and how they try to live and how to, uh, you know, help the poor people who are poor and support institutions they want to support and pray when they should be praying and fast during Ramadan and so forth. Uh, but that's for them personally. In fact, the, the rule in Islamic law historically is that your first responsibility is to live according to the law of the land that you're in uh, and follow, you, you don't have the right to disobey the civil authorities in a non-Muslim country. You have to respect those laws. Now, where it does get a little bit tricky is when you have, and, but this is also true when you think about Orthodox Jews or Catholics or whatever, how does the state get involved in things like divorce? You know, what guides... Uh, you know, the proceedings and divorce, if there's a religious component, you know, to that, how much leeway, you know, should you allow or should you give? Uh, or, you know, what if burial practices, you know, contradict the laws of a state in terms of sanitation and, you know, danger disease or whatever. So those things have to get negotiated. But I don't know any Muslims who are saying, well, you know, no, we, we, they're, what they're saying is we like it here. We like freedom of religion. We like the United States. Um, but we want to govern our lives by, right. you know, uh, by Sharia law. Or by Sharia, Sharia means Islamic law. So when people say Sharia law, they're saying Islamic law, law. Uh, yeah, right. So it's redundant. <laughs> right. So that's the, but, it, but it's the fear that somehow this is coming at us. And again, it's this monolithic image that somehow all Muslims are in on the plot. Right. Um, let me give an illustration from here in Oklahoma. Muslims make up less than 1% of the population. And yet, a uh, highly disproportionate number of college professors and medical professionals, I think uh, at both OU and the university, and Oklahoma State University, uh, there are between 45 and 50 Muslims on the permanent tenure, tenure track faculty. In Oklahoma, in Oklahoma City today and in Tulsa, both cities, there are between 450 and 500 medical doctors practicing who are Muslims. It's estimated nationwide that about 13% of medical professionals are Muslims in the United States, and yet Muslims make up about 3 or 4% of the population is the best guess. Uh, several of the top cardiologists, oncologists, urologists, uh, anesthesiologists in Oklahoma City are Muslims who've been here for 30 years from Syria, Pakistan, or somewhere else. They're doing really, really well. They love it here. Right. I don't know any of them that want Sharia to take over the United States and when you actually start talking to people, and this is part of what I really I try to do both in my lectures around the country and 
in churches and universities, but also in the book, is to encourage people, do you actually know Muslims? And, and often what I find is uh, one of my favorite illustrations is that the guy who said to me uh, a couple of years ago, I like to use this one because it's so poignant. He said, well, I, there's that guy, Muhammad, at CVS, the pharmacist at CVS. I think he's a Muslim. I, well, if his name is Muhammad, pretty good chance. Pretty good know, chance, is. yeah, playing the odds. And, so, and then he says, uh, well, he's a really nice guy. And I said, well, that's great. You know, what are the odds? You know, 1.7 billion people and you found the nice one. You know, what are the odds <laughs> of that happening? Uh, and so, you know, when you actually get to know people, you realize, well, these are doctors. These are architects, the largest home builders in Oklahoma. Our two Muslim brothers from Iran who came pre-revolution, got their degree. The revolution occurred. They couldn't go back very easily and started from, started from scratch and have built a great bit of extraordinarily generous, wonderful people uh, who aren't trying to take over anything. But they're helping an awful lot of people well beyond the Islamic community, supporting both universities and dowing chairs, doing all kinds of things because they believe in education. And they uh, I mean, it, it, it's like, well, when you actually know people then a lot of these fears begin to melt away. Uh, yeah, so so I have this question for you. Um, I'd love to hear some of the fruit that has come from your friendship with individual various Muslim friends over these decades of doing this work. I, it's just, I think it's, we almost can't have too much of this, sort of this humanizing, this concrete narratives of people's lives because we're so inundated by the media images. Yeah, no, I, that you're, and you put your finger on it. I think that uh, it's it's very important. It's not just true for Islam, but I think it has to do with anti-Semitism, with racism, and in terms of uh, African Americans. The more you humanize the other, the more you actually know people, and you see that you know they have hopes, they have dreams, they have fears, they have goals for their children, they want better things, they want good education, they want health care. That you realize how much sort of and our human experiences actually link us together, how much we are alike. That doesn't mean we have the same theological worldview. doesn't mean you have to agree or reduce to the lowest common denominator. But it does mean that as human beings, we have a great deal in common. Uh, and you can really empathize with, you know, what's going on with, with people. What I find, and especially this, I think, is very, very important. Uh, as someone, in my case, uh, being a Caucasian ordained clergy male. Uh, I mean, I've had a lot of things working in my favor you know, throughout my life that I haven't had to wrestle with. I'm, I'm heterosexual. You know, I mean, I, I haven't had to deal with what a lot of people have to deal with. You and me both, uh, man, all the privileges. I've got every so, single one of them. So, yep. you know, when, when that is, uh, although one of my Episcopal friends did say being a Baptist, I was theologically handicapped. So there was that, <laughs> but uh, not everything is perfect. But, uh, but the point is that representing the majority as someone right. who is in in what represent the society is not out to get me uh that i think it particular it puts a particular onus on those of us who are in the majority to be at the forefront of fighting for and protecting the rights of the minority in all kinds of ways i mean we we live in a country where we celebrate religious freedom where we we honor that we say people should be free to practice their faith however they see fit as long as they're not harming other people we live in a country that says we do not want the government dictating to us religion that if someone says no to religion if they think religion is an anachronistic silly way to look at the world they are free to do that yeah, and right. they have and they have a seat at the table too just like yep. i do and we celebrate that so what that means is 
when Muslims want to build a mosque or to expand a mosque, we should be at the forefront of saying you have every right to do that uh, and we will support that. Uh, and what, yet, what you find is that all kinds of barriers get thrown up in all kinds of places that somehow oh, this is going to be a terrorist training center or something like that. Yeah. Uh, let me actually so we, let me wait. Let me wait on the friend question, because I the, this is leading perfectly into one thing I did want to talk about. And then we'll okay. get to your actual right. relationships. I I actually did a little research on this um, back when I was considering doing an episode of my old podcast. I, I did research on all these religious liberty organizations, right? I looked at the, the – some some website, some government website has like – they have to declare how much they raise. So I looked at like the top 25 in terms of how much money they raised. Right. And basically I found that of all the ones that are explicitly Christian, there's like one – there's like three maybe out of 20 that explicitly say all faiths, not just Christian religious liberty – but Muslim and Buddhist and other things. And most of them that used Christian language, uh, they are evangelical or whatever otherwise conservative, um, did not advocate for Islamic religious liberty. And and a bunch of them actually engaged in Islamophobic rhetoric such that they were basically scaring people about Islam into giving – to do, donating money to their organization, which would, quote unquote, protect religious liberty <laughs> for Christians only. Uh Basically, what that research uncovered is this is not – this is systemic, right? So most people giving money to the, quote, religious liberty cause, at least in more conservative circles, which are bigger than the liberal Christian circles in America. So most of these dollars are going to firms or organizations that do not think that applies to Muslims or anyone – you know, not to other religions and especially not to Muslims. And sometimes they're engaged in the same Islamophobia. Have you run into this? What have you found kind of in this pocket of the religious advocacy world? Yeah, I, I think that is the case. There, there, there are exceptions to that, as you point there out. Are. Yeah. Uh, people who are principled and who say, look, you know, we really believe in freedom of religion and freedom from religion imposed by the government. And that applies across the board. As long as people are not harming other people, you know, they're free to practice their faith uh, as, they, as they see fit. But I think you do find... There are a lot of organizations, political ones as well as religious ones, that have very nice, innocuous-sounding names. But when you start doing the homework, as you're talking about, you discover, well, yeah, that sounds great. But what do they stand for? What are they doing? Um, I often tell people this is a, a slightly different topic, but when people are wanting to know, well, there's a disaster, you know, an earthquake, a tornado, a monsoon, something horrible happens – and I want to help, you know, people who are caught halfway around the world or wherever, uh, who should I give to? I said, well, you need to do some homework because oftentimes it's the organizations that advertise the most that are actually spending 70 percent of their budget on overhead. Uh, and so do some homework if you really want your dollars to get to help yeah. people. Uh, so that's a good sort of cautionary word, too, about organizations that may sound good in title. But do a little digging and, oh, well, it turns out that the guy running it and his family were all making a quarter of a million dollars a year. Uh, you know, well, that's interesting for a religious organization. You know, the family's making a million bucks and what are they actually doing? Uh, many of them are great, but there are always some. Uh, and I think it really this this sort of, again, plays to that that sort of fear. Uh, my experience, and this is where living and working in the Middle East, I can tell you, Working with Christians in Egypt, working with Christians in Lebanon and Palestine, um, 
how much the minority Christian community appreciates when the larger Muslim majority protects their rights and advocates for, sure. for them. And so when you see it, from my perspective as a Christian, when the shoe is on the other foot and you appreciate the fact that Muslims, and you saw this during the time of the, uh, the Arab Spring, so-called, in Egypt, where when Christians would be praying, you'd see Muslims gathered around them to protect them while they prayed and vice versa. Uh, and you'd see that in action and go, wow, you know, that's showing respect for the deep roots of both of these traditions in Egypt and the fact that they recognize each other as Egyptians and they recognize that Christianity and Islam are legitimate, you know, religions. When you see that, and especially when you feel it as a minority, it should make us in the majority want to be living out what we claim our ideals are. Uh, and we should be most sensitive to the issue with Islam. But anybody who thinks that anti-Semitism is a thing of the past is not paying attention either, because that's still much, very sadly, alive and well. Remember in Charlottesville, it was just a little over a year ago where people were marching saying Jews will not replace us yep. with, t- with tiki torches. Well, these weren't Hindus or Buddhists or Muslims who were doing that. Nope. So uh, your point your point is well made. Let's let's hear it. Let's get to that question of, of friendship then. So what is what are just in your own life with your own friends? What's some fruit that has come out of those interfaith friendships with Muslims? I'd say quite a number of different things. Uh, one, when there are controversial issues that develop, uh, having friendships and relationships and being able to take that conversation into a church, for example. I think back, a, a vivid example that some people will be old enough to remember, but in the 80s, uh, when we had the whole Salman Rushdie affair, when he, when he wrote the Satanic Verses and that exploded into a big right. uh, controversy, or we've had situations where you know, like in the aftermath of the attack on Charlie Hebdo in, in uh, Paris, uh, or there were some issues around the cartoons published by the, the in, in uh, Denmark uh, depicting Muhammad in less than uh, favorable ways that produced a big uproar and questions of freedom of the press and expression and religious freedom and so forth. Having friendships and relationships uh, when those were really hot issues and it tended to put a very negative light on Islam, uh, the intolerance of people what, the guy can't write a book, you're going to kill him because he wrote a book, right? Uh, being able to go to my friends and say, come with me, we're going to go to this church and this church and this church and have, you know, open discussions and forums and let people understand, you know, while you disagree with this, why many Muslims would be upset with these kind of depictions of the prophet and what's going on, let's talk. Uh, let's have, we're in a country where we can have free exchange, but unless you know somebody, unless you are able to take initiative and those kind of things, or People say, well, what can we do? Well, we can build a Habitat for Humanity house together. I know the imam uh, put this pastor in touch with the imam in that synagogue, and you guys meet, and uh, women meet, and uh, make a plan. And, you know, you don't have to agree on who Jesus was to build a house that, for people who are in need. Uh, yeah, or for instance, I, I'm training to be a psychologist right now, and one of the things <coughs> that we've learned recently is the importance, uh, especially with sort of non-Western non-white Western populations, the importance of religious leaders in those communities. And that sometimes if you want to give someone the help that they need, you're, you have better outcomes by involving their priest, their imam, their shaman, if they're, uh, you know, Native American or something. Um, And it's not so simple as to say, well, that's all backward uh, and we should ignore it. It's like, no, like these are real people. You really want to get them help, medication, whatever they need. And and like 
there are barriers to reaching people for all kinds of reasons. And these religious leaders, if you can have clear communication and good relationships with them, they can actually help you get the medical care to the people. And so that's a very practical benefit of just having lines of communication open and good relationships. Right. Yeah. And I think there, I mean, there are just all kinds of things that facilitate relationships and community. And I know in my case, I mean, I I speak to a lot of Muslim organizations and in mosques uh, as well. And there's just always a tremendous receptivity and appreciation for uh, Christian leaders uh, who actually know something about Islam, who actually care uh, and can bring an empathetic ear. But at the same time, you know, we'll discuss and debate points of disagreement and difference theologically and so forth uh, in a healthy, constructive way. That's, uh, you know, I just find that's always been something that's deeply, deeply appreciated. Uh, in fact, the one of the things, I'll give you a quick example out of my deep history. Uh, I was one of seven people uh, clergy involved in the Iran hostage crisis back when the student Middleton had taken the embassy. And that's a longer story. I was a 29-year-old doctoral student at Harvard and was included in a group of uh, very prominent clergy uh, who were invited to Iran. We, had, we were actually the only ones who, who met with the Ayatollah Khomeini during the whole hostage crisis, the only American uh, Americans who did. And we were in the student in the embassy with the students, locked inside the embassy in the second month of the hostage crisis, and there's a longer backstory, but to cut to the story here, the chase, uh, one of the students at one point, we'd been there for three hours, said that the taking of these spies is a great Islamic act, to which I blurted out, that's BS, except I used the full word. Uh, and, of course, my the president of the Southern Baptist Convention kind of looking at me and the Methodist bishops looking at me like, you know, uh, do you know where we are and what you're saying here? <laughs> uh, we're locked in the embassy and I said, uh, they said, what do you mean? I said, well, it has nothing to do with Islam. I, I understand why you feel like taking the embassy and holding hostage. You were afraid the U.S. was going to bring the Shah back into Iran and thwart your revolution. I understand that. I think, you know, you're wrong. I think this is illegal. It's immoral. I think it's going to hurt your revolution. Uh, but I understand in revolutionary terms why you feel compelled to do this. But don't lay this at the feet of Islam. And I quote a saying of the prophet that your responsibility is to protect the foreigner in your midst and show hospitality to the stranger in your land. And I said, when you say this, you sound like you're stupid, like you don't even understand your own religion. Uh, And I think this hurts Islam and the image of the world. So there's this pause. Now, we're locked inside the embassy where they have 52 hostages. And my colleagues are looking at me like, what the heck are you doing? The students paused for a while. It seemed like an hour, but it was probably 15 seconds said, okay, well, it's not Islamic, but it is revolutionary. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> I said, then call it a revolutionary act. Well, as soon as the three-hour conversation ended, a couple of them hustled me over to the side and said, uh, what else did the prophet say that maybe we need to know about? <laughs> so, No way. Uh, That's yeah. crazy. Uh, and so, uh, but a couple of them were, some of them were fairly new converts to the cause, as it were. Uh, but then what they said was, and this is what it, where I'm going with it, was that how much they appreciated and respected the fact. They said, we know, I mean, you're here, you know, you're you're putting yourself in our hands. You know we're not trying to kill people. We're trying to protect our revolution. And you're doing the kind of things that we would expect Christian ministers to do. We don't know how long this is going to go on, but if it continues, you are welcome to come back anytime we will meet with you. 
So I became one of two people that they trusted to come into the embassy to take mail to the hostages and you know be an interlocutor. But the reason for that was that they, as I said, you're somebody who took us seriously as human beings before there was a revolution, before there was a hostage crisis. Yeah, uh, you took us seriously. You took Islam seriously, uh, and you know they just respected that enormously. Well, talk about bearing fruit. That's incredible. Um, we've got time for basically one more topic question. Okay. And it's one that does not come up as often. And when I saw it in your book, I was really intrigued. You talk about – so we do hear a lot – I mean if you're paying attention, you hear about interreligious dialogue. You hear about um, sort of dialogue between parties, right? So a Christian party and a Muslim party or something. But you also bring up this idea of inner dialogue. You call it inner dialogue. Um, and it's more about what's going on in me as I am presented with images of Muslims or claims of Islam or whatever. Just just talk a little bit about this inner dialogue. I'd like to spend a few minutes on it. Yeah, I think, I think this actually happens all the time, not just in interfaith settings, but even within one's own tradition. <clears throat> in your marriage or in your relationships with other people that we actually often unconsciously are having a kind of inner dialogue. Well, how do I make sense of that? Or how do I process that information? And what does that change in my perspective? You know, oh, I learned something today. Actually, we should all be doing this all the time, constantly trying to learn, grow, sometimes unlearn things we thought we knew uh, when we're presented with new information, etc. cetera. Uh, one, of the, one of the great values of intentional dialogue uh, whether it's in a formal setting where you have a structured kind of meeting and I talk about this and give guidelines on ways to sort of start easily, you know, where you don't have to blow up a discussion because you're talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or something. Uh, but when you do that in an organized or intentional sort of setting or even saying, I'm going to, you know, I want to go sit down with my neighbor, you know, let's go have coffee. I really want to know more about the five pillars of Islam. You know, talk to me about that. That's an intentional kind of dialogue on a more informal basis. Yeah. Part of what should be happening, and what, I think what does happen, but I'm, I'm advocating try to be more intentional about that, is, okay, what difference does it make? What am I learning? What am I, how is this shaping my worldview, my theology even? I'm, I'm kind of a firm believer, not kind of, I am a firm believer that we, uh, a lot of the time we live into our theology that uh, our experiences are another factor that shape our theological perspective. It's not just a matter of yeah. think, thinking about things, constructing something, and then seeing how to make the pieces fit into that. An example being, you know, with the Jewish grandfather, I grew up with a very positive view of Judaism right? and was, was taught and experienced that we're Christians, but it's also good to be Jewish. Well, about the time I got to the third grade, I discovered not everybody else in Tulsa had such a positive view of Judaism. Uh, Shocking. And that somehow, you know, to say it's good to be Jewish, not just okay, but well, that has theological implications. It does. No, it really does, uh, and, yeah. And, and so realizing that, and as you're engaging with other people, and something I really learned, I think, from working with Christians in the Middle East who've lived together with Muslims for 14 centuries uh, is from a Christian perspective, and I have a chapter dealing with, as you know, with mission and dialogue, these two imperatives, how do you negotiate that? Because some people think, well, if you do dialogue, you're negating mission. And, and so how do you move through that? And one of the things that I, I learned, I wrote about in another book some years ago, uh, is that Middle Eastern Christians, especially in countries where it's illegal to proselytize, uh, talk primarily about bearing witness 
that mission in the form of, of Christian witness, doing the right thing, you know, providing food, shelter, help, medical care, whatever the kinds of things where you bear witness to the good news of God as you understand it. Uh, and you sort of put that out there. You can't you know, form, formally try to persuade somebody to join the church or whatever. Uh, well, that even that process, I think, promotes a kind of inner dialogue to say, and so part of what I learned, and I guess what I discovered internally in that process was, actually, I'm not responsible to convert anybody. That's not my job. My job is to bear witness uh, to what I think is true and also be willing to listen to what somebody else has to say about what they think is most meaningful and in their lives, and that might be from a Muslim or a Buddhist or an atheist or whomever. Uh, and to let that sort of then be a part of my own inner landscape uh, and recognize that I'm not God. Uh, I can hold fast to what I believe is true. I can have what I think modified. Uh, a Southern Baptist pastor, when I was coming out of college and heading for seminary, very, very conservative, traditional Southern Baptist evangelist type. Uh, I asked him one day, you know, what he thought about the different world religions and God's work beyond the walls of the church. And in a very liberating moment, this guy who did, you know, was a just the you know preeminent evangelist said, "Oh, I think God is doing all kinds of things that we don't know and understand very well." And then he gave me a lot of biblical passages to show that uh, God is the God of all creation and God's love. He said, "You know," I said, "Well, why do you do what you do? Why do you say what you say uh, and sort of browbeat people to come forward and accept Jesus?" He said, "Well, I'm 100 percent sure of what God has done in Christ, and whatever else God is doing is fine." He said, but here's the thing. He said, don't be afraid to pursue the truth. Don't be afraid to study, to learn, to change. It was an, just an incredibly liberating thing to come from this very conservative pastor yeah. who said, you know, don't be afraid to pursue the truth and let that take you where it goes. And so I think as we intentionally try to sort of process um, internally uh, what happens as we engage with other people, and religion is just one component of that, uh, I think um, I'm saying just be more conscious of the process going on inside of you about, well, what does this mean and how does that shape and how is that inconsistent with, you know, what I say or what I've always thought? Uh, do I need to modify that and how do I modify that? Um, yeah, I guess so I'm forth. curious. I, I want to follow up by just asking for an example or two uh, in your friendships with Muslims that has affected your theology or even just your practice, like your your lived practice of Christianity. Does anything come to mind? Yeah, I think the uh, – uh, I actually give a little bit of an example of this, I think, in one part of the book where I talk about uh, an event in Saudi Arabia with prominent Saudis uh, where I was a head of one of the two people heading a small delegation there. And after we'd had dinner, uh, the sheikh, the leader of their group, you know, asked, well, do we believe God has a son? Uh, and I repeated in Arabic that there is no God but God. We believe there is no God but God, which is the first part of the confession of faith in Islam. Right. And he, they all kind of laughed. And he said, yes, but do you believe God has a son? And I said, I believe that there is no God but God. He said, you know, we believe in one God. And he asked a third time, and then I turned the question back on him in a good pedagogical trick, you know, to answer a question with a question. I said, uh, I said, well, let me ask you this. Do you believe the Quran is the word of God? And he said, yes, of course. I said, is it perfect? Is it eternal? Is it uncreated? Yes, yes, of course. How is it different from God? Aren't you associating something with God 
if it's perfect and eternal and uncreated, and of course associating something with God is anathema in Islam. And I said, here's the, here's the challenge. We both say we believe in one God. We both affirm that God has revealed God's self and what we need to know to human beings. In my understanding, in my experience, that primarily has come first and foremost through a person, that God was in Christ, uh, and that the full expression of God's revelation, Jesus is the word of God, according to the Gospel of John. The Bible points us to that, but we don't worship the Bible, we worship God. You see the, the word of God as a book, and you don't worship the book, but you see that as the means of revelation. So really, you have the same problem we have, and that uh, you have something that is God's way of revealing is your understanding. Well, part of, and, and so, you know, everybody kind of got a little tense at that point, and he wanted to change the subject because he thought he had me cornered, but it turned out, you know, that they do have the same kind of uh, challenge. Aren't you then breaking the oneness or the unity of God somehow? To turn the question back in terms of inner dialogue and even relationship and friendship, I mean, in my own theology, it's like, uh, finding a way to be more appreciative of, and not just Islam, but I would say with Judaism and with other religious traditions too, of seeing similar patterns and, and ways that uh, God, ultimate reality, the spirit, uh, is moving in, in the lives of people. And you see how that's manifest in their lives and maybe framed somewhat differently theologically. Uh, but I find that opens me up to a much more I would say, well, open sort of theological perspective uh, and and awareness that uh, my particular experience uh, is important, but it has been shaped by the fact that I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1950 into a Protestant family. Had I been born in Cairo or Calcutta, undoubtedly, uh, my worldview would have been shaped somewhat differently. And to the best of my knowledge, I didn't pick Tulsa as my birthplace uh, or the parents that I got the Jewish grandfather on one side, but that has shaped my view. Uh, just as my study of world religions and engaging with other people uh, has shaped my view. Now, there are some, I know some people who study world religions who end up becoming Buddhist. I know some who end up saying, uh, this is all just uh, an old way of trying to frame and make sense of life and death and so forth. So, you know, the study of other religions and engaging people doesn't necessarily determine in my case, I think it's actually deepened me as uh, a Christian, but recognizing that my experience of God or ultimate reality has been framed uh, in part, probably in pretty large part, by uh, the way I've grown up and the tradition to which I've been exposed. Uh, and I'm very reticent to put God in the box and say, uh, you know, that uh, that's the only way uh, that one can experience uh, the reality of God. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I, I find a similar general move the more I learn about other religions, but I don't have a ton of interreligious friendships on which to draw um, in the same way that you have had. Um, man, Dr. Kimball, thank you so much for your time. I, I do want to say there's some stuff we didn't get to that is in the book. You know, you talk about the five pillars of Islam. You nuance this phrase, Islam is a religion of peace that gets a lot of play, especially on like talk, you know, talking heads and stuff. And you think it's a little more complicated than that. Um, so I would recommend if people are interested further, the book is really well written. It's quite compact. It's not overwhelming. It comes in under 200 pages. Um, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. It's called Truth Over Fear. Anything else you'd like to add? 
No, I appreciate that plug for the book. And it's very much written at an accessible level on purpose. Exactly. It totally uh, is. Yep. And it's even set up nicely, I think, for a kind of group study or conversation. I hope yeah. a lot of cler- clergy will read the book because they are often turned to, well, what do you say about X, Y, and Z? And this will give them some tools, I think, that will be helpful, as you've tried to do in, in our discussion this afternoon as well. And like the chapter on the five pillars, I've had a lot of very positive feedback already from Muslims and others, and, and particularly from Christians, who, because the last portion of that is I, I illustrate how there's really nothing alien here uh, to Christians and Jews. I mean, this is actually, or, and other religious traditions, uh, when you actually understand what these are and how they're supposed to work, uh, it's actually something that Christians, Jews, and others do as well in just different forms. So right. uh, a lot of it is demystifying uh, and filling in some blanks where people don't know very much yet. But uh, hopefully the book will contribute uh, in various ways to people's understanding. I'm sure it will. Again, Charles, thank you so much, man. Have a good rest of your day. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you to Scott Sanjemi for editing my conversation with Charles. I've got a link to his book, Truth Over Fear, in the show notes. I got a question recently. Where are these show notes? If you look at your podcast app, they do it in different ways, but you should be able to click some button or slide, you know, swipe left or right. And there is text that is associated with every podcast episode. And so in that text are the various links that I mentioned. Among those links, the Patreon, five bucks a month, at least two exclusive episodes, membership in the Facebook group, uh, and more. If that's something you're interested in, patreon.com slash dancoke, or youhavepermissionpod.com, click become a patron. And again, there is a sliding scale. So email me if that's the case, youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. I think that's it, guys. We will see you next week. 